Good morning, everyone. This is Josh Carr at The Real Angle, and today I am speaking with Kevin McCarthy at Southmark Capital. How are you doing, Kevin? I'm great. Thanks. Great. Hope you are. Beautiful. Beautiful. So one thing I always like to tell everyone before we even get started, uh, your web address is southmarkcapital.com, right? Yes. Beautiful. Okay. Yeah, I always like to tell everyone that because invariably people go on the internet and want to know who's this Kevin guy. So uh, so let's start with the intro. Um, where, where are you based? Wilmington, North Carolina. Beautiful part of the country there. And tell me a little bit about Southmark. Uh, how'd you start it? When did you start it? What do you guys do? All that kind of good stuff. Sure, sure. Um, Southmark's alternative asset manager. We started in 2009. Prior to that, um, I spent 10 years um, running a family office. And that family office came about from orchestrating a leveraged buyout of two families in a in a regional development slash commercial um, company. And they okay. they they had been successful for 35 years. They didn't want to force their family members to have to work together. And so they made the decision to to separate. And we did a leverage buyout. And when I got completed with that, the the minority owner asked me to come on and try to try to get rid of all the debt I put on his balance sheet. And in the process, he liked he liked how I structured the investments and said, why don't you stick around and run our family office? Nice. And um, during that time, had a lot of different partnerships. And, and one of the one of the companies that they had partnered with on several transactions was Land South. Land South had gone back to the RTC RTC days and they purchased that from banks. They partnered with Cargill during that time. Cargill went through a change um, forming Carval and it opened up a unique opportunity. So in 2009, we already saw the we saw the issues coming with the great financial crisis. Yep. It had a lot of opportunities to work together. And so I went to to both principals, the principal of Landmark, the principal of Land South, and said, "Why don't we set up Southmark, and why don't we see if we can capitalize on the opportunities coming?" And so Southmark was just Landmark and Land South, and we combined the South and the Mark. And for the next for the next five years, I worked essentially for those two principals. Well, it sounds it's it's funny how these names of businesses get created. A lot of times, it. Uh... It starts as a placeholder, and then you're still using it 10 years, 15, 20 years later. Yes. Um, and so by alternative investment manager, I mean, you're doing real estate, obviously, but you're doing, my understanding is you do a lot of distressed debt, restructuring, bridge. Is that kind of a good description of what the kind of stuff you guys are doing? It is. I, you know, I described it always as opportunistic and value add. The opportunistic side is buying the buying the debt from the banks and you know, up until 2012, 2013, there was always debt being sold by the banks. Once we got into the 12 and 13, there was still debt moving, but a lot of times it was being restructured at the bank level. You know, we dropped interest rates. Um, we created a note A and a note B. And, and what we started to do at that time is we started working directly with borrowers. And so got um, really got good at coming in on the borrower side, restructuring their debt. Um, right. And learning really the intricacies of lending just by if you if you do something long enough, you you have to get better. Yeah, no, it's funny. I mean, I'm I'm not an attorney and I don't pretend to be one, but at the same time, if you read enough contracts, 
you, you start to put things together. Um, you start to know, you start to notice, gee, I've not seen this clause before. So what was it like going from working with banks to building your own origination pipeline? Because that sounds like a very different experience. You know, what, what's, what's interesting is that, you know, through this process, I, I worked just in the Carolinas, Georgia and Florida. Um, okay. Great, great relationships because of, you know, I've bought, I've, I've restructured over a thousand notes and fortunately I've never had to foreclose on any of them. You know, one thing that, one thing that's unique is that as I restructure it, I leave a little money on the table for the borrower. And so the position I've always put myself in is if you pay me off, I do okay. And if you don't pay me off, I do really well. And so I'm in a, I'm in a great position to have some flexibility. It also... It also develops these incredible relationships because I have competition that doesn't that doesn't take that same approach. You know, it's come in and try to extract every single dollar you can. And so through that process, I've developed a great referral, great network. Um, and there's always distress. You know, distress happens because somebody overpaid for an ass asset. Distress happens when somebody goes through a divorce, somebody passes away. Um Distress happens when we went through COVID and all of a sudden people aren't working in office buildings any longer. They're working at their homes. So through that process, there's a there's a pipeline that is always moving. And if you have if you have the right relationships and you have the insight and you have the experience, and most importantly, if you have the capital, there's opportunities that they come across your desk every day. Fair enough. Fair enough. So typically, so let's talk about sort of natural competitors. I mean, you're competing against other bridge lenders, I imagine. You're not really up against banks. You're kind of in that bridge lending universe, if you will. That's correct. And That's correct. and most, my impression of most bridge lenders are that they're not relative. I mean, they're they're basically usually local players, right? Or do you really see national guys in this space? Seems like it's always been very fo focused on sort of local local entities. Well, you know, I saw I saw a statistic that showed, you know, after the great financial crisis, the last decade, we have gone, we, we've doubled the amount of private lenders inside the marketplace. We've um, we've gone from somewhere around 44 billion to 200 billion. And then part of the reasons are is that the big banks got caught up with all the all the regulations that came out and the regional and small banks and the private lenders filled the space. And right. You know, what I've always done is I've, I've competed at a level that's been underneath the big guys. So your your big Wall Street firms that are coming in um, that are looking for um, large transactions. I've stayed I've stayed in uh, maybe that that three to ten million dollar range. Okay. And when you're when you're floating around in that range, you are dealing against a lot of local individuals. Sure. And. And you're also dealing with people that, you know, what I did early on is I put my money into, into what I set up and then I, and then I brought a partner in. And so I was investing my own money. And the beauty of that is, is that I could go talk to somebody. I could essentially make the decision. It was a phone call away to confirm that we were going to do it. Whereas a lot of my competition, they're more or less a broker that's having to then go try to call somebody to try to put them in place. And so with speed right. and certainty, I can beat them out. And if I stay underneath that radar screen of the big guys, then I can be extremely competitive. Right. And I'd also imagine you have a better understanding of the Carolinas than someone who's only just flown down there two days ago. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot to be said for the local market knowledge. Well, we try to say if you have boots on the ground. 
Yeah, you know, if, know. if you've been traveling up and down the road for, for 30 years, if you've watched how the market has evolved, um, if you don't get stuck in thinking that just because it hasn't happened here, it will never happen here. Sure. Then, you know, there's two sides. There's two sides to that coin. And and the other thing that we've done is that we've been extremely flexible. And so we've done value add. So, you know, when the great financial crisis hit, we went into Atlanta. We bought hundreds of loans. We restructured those loans. Those were anywhere from loans of developers that had walked away, builders that were in trouble. And then we restructured them with national builders and worked our way out of it. And then somewhere around 2014, um, we completed that because what happens inside those markets is that is, is everybody figures out where the opportunity is. They drive up the price and the yield goes away. And so as the price drove up, people moved in. That's the time that I set up third-party management with Southmark. So 2013, 2014, um, brought in outside investors. And then I saw an opportunity with Suburban Office and it just was mispriced. And okay. so I ended up buying 10 office buildings, selling the last one in December of 2021. And the opportunity was that there was just a great value add um, through that stretch. And that's and so, interesting. So you've you've done bridge lending and you've also taken equity positions, which is not which is not the typical bridge lender sort of MO, if you will, which I think speaks to the flexibility. I mean, it sounds like as long as you're in your market, you know, you're you're willing to sort of you're willing to sort of be in the you, you it sounds to me like the debt equity line is not as firm as it might be at other lenders. I guess Yeah, the beauty is that I spent fourteen years learning how to develop. And right. and so I'm a I'm a, I'm an own, a developer investor first, a lender second. And so the, the properties that I cherry pick or the deals that I look for are deals that I'm completely comfortable owning long-term. And so the opportunities are when I step in and I bring capital to the table, I also bring expertise. And so I can ride co-pilot and assist or make, make, you know, make a few comments here, here or there. I, you know, I'll give you an example. I had a developer that had a lot of had a lot of residential lots. Uh -huh. He was trying to sell those residential lots to the retail market. Okay, that's a difficult sale to make because the retail buyer is coming in and they want to see a house, they want to touch a house, they have a difficulty visualizing. Sure. So I subordinated one of the lots, had him gave him the financing to build one of the homes. And then for a project that hadn't had any traction or sales, all of a sudden he sold out in eight months. And again, it was just from experience of saying you're going about it the wrong way. His broker thought it, would, it was great to put, you know, 25 lots into the MLS, but they were they were advertising the wrong direction. And so yeah, and, that and was the fact you were move. the fact that you were I mean to paraphrase the fact that you were flexible and rejiggering the financing and giving me some additional proceeds just to get the model home up. Whereas another lender would have just said, I lent you the money, just pay me, we're done. And I, I don't really care. You were caring more about the overall viability of the project, which 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 makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. And it's and, and your point about homeowners, you know, your typical buyer buying a lot, yeah, you're dead on right. I mean, people will buy a lot and then they'll stare at it because they just they're not they don't build for a living. They don't they don't know how to get the thing built. Yeah. And I'll give you another story that was we we had a huge project in Atlanta that we purchased and it, it involved two large banks. Okay. And so we bought half the project from one bank, 
the other bank we approached, we had a relationship with, and we wanted to buy their note as well. Sure. They they politely declined. Okay. They they kept their price above market, and so we came in. We spent some. We we gave the developer fifty thousand dollars to come in and do all the landscaping. We started to sell the houses because our comp was their was their product, which was the same house, except ours was at market a hundred thousand dollars cheaper. Right. So all of a sudden, our houses start selling twenty five a month in a market that's not having any sales. Sure. So then, what what the bank does is they drop their price below ours, and when they drop their price below ours, the market thinks there's something wrong with their houses, and it accelerates my sales up to thirty five. And so the the example is again, this is a business that you know you need experience, you need insight. You need relationships and then you need capital. And if you have all of those and you've been doing it for a long time, you understand what's happening inside the market. Unfortunately, if you if you don't understand that and you're sitting in an office and you haven't been out to the job site or you don't you don't understand what's happening, those are the areas that we've been able to capitalize and do very well. Yeah, no, and, and I think that's all dead on. I mean, you know, making the point that it's not just a financial product, right? It's not just numbers on a screen it's not a stock or bond it's a physical thing you can you can walk at the site you can walk the site you can look at the view lines you can look right. at the finishes you can actually talk about a physical good and if you don't understand that you fundamentally don't understand real estate uh, it, it's people forget that it is a it's a physical good so product type wise i mean i've heard us talk we've talked a bit about apartments we've talked a bit about office are there other product types that you just won't touch either because you just think they're a dead end or you just don't want to even get into them because you don't understand them or want to understand them. Any product types you just don't do? I, you know, great question. Um, we do office, we do residential, which mainly is apartments. Um, we do light industrial. Okay. And then outside of that, we don't, we don't touch other product types. And it's not because I don't like other product types. I think, I think the shopping center model is fantastic. Obviously, industrial is wonderful. You you've got you've got the lowest occupancy vacancy rates. You've you've got a great client. You've got sure. you've got a great trend coming. But what I've learned is that real estate is a it's difficult enough with the properties I've been working within for the last thirty years. You appreciate as you continue to work in it. I think it humbles you a little bit of how much you need to know. And also sometimes the luck that you have in a situation. And to think, you know, when I come across a shopping center loan or a deal, I have great shopping center relationships with individuals and I call them up and I can just move the loan to them if that's what they want to do. And I always, one of the reasons I always like to ask this question is because often I'll say to people, what product types do you do? And they'll do everything. They say, oh, we do everything. And then I say, right. well, what about hotels? They go, well, no, I never touch hotels. I'm like, well, then you don't do everything. You know, right. which, again, there's no knock on that. I mean, the hotels are great, but like I've I've never managed a hotel. I've never operated a hotel. I don't know anything about hotels other than as a consumer of hotels, you know, so yeah. I'd be foolish to do a hotel loan. I mean, you know, I again, I think, you know, I'm here to talk to you, but I will share one funny anecdote from my own life. A colleague of mine who does boutique hotels, I used to rent him a desk in my office because he needed a place to work. And he came to me one day and he said, uh, I'm trying to figure out what nuts should go in the mini bar. We're going to have a nut tasting in the conference room. And he brought in like 
80 yep. kinds of pecans and almonds and all this sort of stuff. And we sat there like idiots at lunch, taste testing nuts. And my grand conclusion was to say, you know what? You do hotels. Like I, I don't have the patience for this. I would kill someone if I had to worry about what kind of pecan I had to put in the mini bar, you know? Right. Right. But, that matters. It matters for that. Uh, for you and I, not so much. But uh, well, but anyway, anyway. Well, the beauty for me is I like to own real estate first. If I can own it, that's fantastic. And, sure. and when I'm looking to own real estate, the advantage I have is that I'm in the marketplace looking for, I'm looking for property, for lack of a better term, that has a couple issues with it. And those issues could be something as simple as that the owner doesn't have the capital they need to put back into the property or or more importantly, to be able to do the right leases because they can't do the right marketing. It could be it could be that it's an owner that has hired a third party to manage it. The, the third party just isn't doing a great job. And because they're not seeing because they're not walking the property, they don't see it. And so. As I continue to circulate through the market, I have a list of properties I'm interested in, and then I make offers on those properties. And eventually, you know, 90% of my business is off market. And the, the lending piece comes about, you know, I set up, I set up a, um, for lack of a better term, a $20 million partnership um, in 2017. And the reason I did that is that the market had, values had, had gone up to a level that I thought you were losing, you know, your risk reward ratio wasn't good. And so I started lending money off just balance sheet lending on real estate. And we did extremely well. And then we blew through the 20 million. So we set up a $50 million um, partnership. And, and again, it was all predicated early on. I had some great mentors and, you know, it said, why don't you just swim downstream? Pay attention to the market. Don't fight the market. Understand the market, and and um, and then just respond to it. Yeah. So I mean, you talk about funding. So basically, you're a balance sheet lender at the end of the day. You're you're basically yes. lending your money. I mean, you're not yeah. you're not broking the loan out, which really does make you more like a traditional bank. But I guess instead of having a bunch of little depositors, you have, for lack of a better way of putting it, one or two just big depositors essentially, right. and you're deploying their cash, which <laughs> makes a lot of sense. And the beauty is the deals that I'm setting up. I'm 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 probably on average less than fifty percent loan to value, and I'm I'm a quicker source for somebody. I'm a trusted source because of my history. And again, for my you know for me, if for some reason something goes wrong and I have to take the asset back, I'm going to make four times what I'm making, and I'm already making a great return. And so right. you know, and and so the beauty of the model is that. Um, you can make it, you, you, you can do really well for your investors. You, you can sleep well at night because if something really does go wrong, you're, you're going to do even better. You can still reposition it. You can do other things. Yeah. Yeah. And then you just do everything you can to help them get where they need to be. And if you help them get where they need to be, you'll do well, they'll do fine. And next thing you know, your phone will ring again. And maybe I'm reading between the lines here, but one thing I, we haven't talked about is it sounds to me like the borrowers that you're dealing with. It generally sounds to me like these are capable people who just got in a bad situation rather than they just should have never been doing this at all. Correct. You know? I mean, we haven't really addressed the competence issue yet, but like we've talked about the real estate. We've talked about, am I correct? I mean, that that's, I'm on point here, right? You, you are. And, and you know, the other, the other thing about our industry is that we go through a boom and bust cycle. It takes 12 to 15 years usually. And during that cycle, you know, it becomes too easy. And when it becomes too easy, you bring in, you know, again, my opinion, you bring in, you you always have the desire to make more money, but then you have this other factor that comes in and that's the envy. 
So when the guy across the street is doing it and he's making easy money, and we did it through the financial crisis when sure. when people people owned six, seven, eight, nine homes, you know, right. they were never planning on living six, seven, eight, nine homes, but they were getting the financing. And and you know, and I and I think again, I think I think all the pieces are coming together again for an incredible opportunity because we've we've repeated some of those mistakes. No, and, and your point about boom and bust is well taken. I mean, look, when things are good, I. I envy is powerful you know if you're building a big building i want to build a bigger building because of course i do you know it, it's and so yeah you do definitely see people who are capable professionals get over their skis so to speak um no it's in it's it's a very healthy attitude i mean i don't know how else to put it i really i really enjoy the way that you're sort of seeing it so so what sort of we talked about deals that work for you and you know the secret sauce here really just comes down to i think local market knowledge competence building those relationships, harvesting right. those relationships. Um, what kind of deals are good, but you don't do? Like, what doesn't work for you, I guess would be a way of putting it, like for your funding source? Are there things, deals where just it's just going to take too long to execute? Like, you know, we talked about product types, certain product types just don't fit, out of market, What what else? Any, anything out, out of market is key. You know, I've looked at a lot of great deals in Nashville, Tennessee. I think it's a fantastic, fantastic city, fantastic trend. Too sure. hard to get to. Um, I try to stay in a position that I can be at a property within six hours. And if I can get to a property within six hours, I know if an issue comes up, I can, you know, I can be there. I think, you know, the challenge is walking away from deals that you know are fantastic. You know, I, I do a lot of work in Raleigh-Durham. There was an incredible piece of property that that um, had a few issues with it. Um, it was being cleaned up. I knew I, I knew that it was going to be approved, and it was a piece that sat in a great location. The challenge was is it's 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 land, and so when you buy that land, you have to turn around and sell it to somebody else, or you need to develop it. And the problem I had is that I always have two exit strategies on every deal that I do. And right. that one, I could only come up with one exit strategy. Now, now I'll be honest, that that deal ended up making the buyer $100 million and they made it in three years. So I was spot on of what the deal was. The problem was, is there was only one way to go. And so with only one way to go, you're, you're, you're leaving, in my world, you're leaving the investor world and you're going into being a speculator. And that's a dangerous place to be. And and so those those are some deals that, you're you're 99 sure that deal is going to work out fantastic and it you know that's a deal that that's a great deal if i if i had more capital of my own and i wanted to put it in a generational investment because i knew you know maybe it doesn't happen in my lifetime maybe it happens in in my family's lifetime I just right. wasn't at that position. And so because I wasn't at that position, I had to walk away from it. And you know what, you know what happens in real estate, and I'll get back to the envy, is yeah. that I was at a football game and the and the gentleman that was in the same box as me was the guy that did the deal. And and of course he he didn't know he didn't know my involvement in it, but he proceeded to tell me the whole story about how great of a deal it you was. Yeah, and all you could say is congratulations. I mean, <laughs> yes, right? What else can you say? Good for you. You know, I mean, good for you. You know, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think unfortunately, uh, 
you know, it's it's the one that got away, right? But at the same time, you don't have to you don't have to do every deal. Uh, there are lots of good deals. You do. Well, from you know my experience, that you know what I've had is I put together a plan A and a plan B, and and what I've learned is that eighty percent of the time I'm on plan B, and then ten percent I hit plan A and ten percent I hit plan <laughs> C, and because of that, I've realized I'm just not that good if I'm only going to have one plan. And right. so, you know, and, and what's what's interesting is some of the best deals I've done over the last 10 years, you know, we've got a great track record. We closed over $100 million in 10 years. We still have another 25 outstanding. We made $25.5 million in profit. Our investors made 18.5% IRR net of fees. But but what's interesting is, is that is that the lowest deal we did was was 8.5%. And I, you know, I did a lot of work for that deal not to not to make any money. But the best deals that we did for the investors were close to 30%. And, and both of those deals had problems. Right. And, and when we had to get involved and figure out how to solve those problems, we actually did better than what we would have done if we hadn't had those problems. And, and so what I've learned is, is that I'm not very good at predicting the future. I'm better at understanding where the market is today. And once you understand that, for me, I've got to have two exit strategies, and if I don't, I just I just can't move forward. No, your yeah, and your point on predicting the future is well taken. I mean, look, you know, I mean, take COVID. I mean, you know, that that was on no one's radar screen because how could it be? It was like something out of a Hollywood movie, you know. And then it happens, and they're all staring at each other, saying, "Well, now what the heck do we do?" And uh, those uh, those once in a lifetime type events seem to happen with uh, alarming alacrity. They 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 just keep happening because you can't yeah. You can't predict. How could you? So speaking of things you can't predict, I mean, interest rates have spiked. Maybe you could predict that because the government printed money like it was going out of style. Um, right. How has that affected you guys in terms of loans you're making? I mean, obviously you raise your rates, but has there been a slowdown in that in act in your activity because rates are higher? What how has that affected your business? Well, I, th I think it's fascinating to think that you know the rates have gone up 500, 500 points in 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 a very short period of time. And so clearly, you know, the value add model that was great for 20 plus years, that's a tough model to, to pull off today. And right. also um, the ground up construction is very difficult to do today. And then couple that with the fact that the banks took, you know, we had a zero rate interest rate policy. The banks took excess deposits and invested them in other areas that are now causing some challenges for them. And you've got office, you've got the office market that, you know, we're still repricing assets. And, you know, back in the great financial crisis, I remember somebody said, well, the banks just over leveraged everything they did. And I said, I don't think it's over leveraging. I think it's just mispricing of assets. And, and we've done it again. And so as, as we start to see, as we start to see the pressure mount and the challenges that are coming today, the opportunities all, you know, I get calls every single day to fill the, the capital stack on construction. Because we're still short housing units. The challenge is, is that we have an incredible supply coming into certain markets. Rents are negative. There's some pressure for those that 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 don't have the right capital structure. And, you know, what I learned in the distress side is that you should always have, you need to plan for those, those, those unexpected surprises. So, you know, our last our last office building we bought was in November of 2019. It was 63% occupied. We by we turned the corner in February. We are 85% occupied. 
We are heading to a hundred. We so we had surpassed in the right direction. Yeah. COVID hit. We bled all the way back down to sixty three percent. Sure. And then because we had capital, we were able to execute the the plan that made sense in the marketplace, and we we jumped ahead of a lot of people, leased it up to a hundred percent, and sold it in December of twenty one. And, and so my point is that today in the marketplace, you're if you don't have capital or if you have a great piece of property and you're trying to build, you're trying to build that. I get phone calls every day to, to add money to the construction. The problem is, is that you have to understand is where's what's that asset going to be worth when it's when it's built. Right. And, or are you already underwater and you're just not you're throwing good money after bad. And also, you know, I mean, supply chains are still messed up. I mean, at the end of the day, you still you can't just get the materials you need. So everything's taking longer than it should. So, yeah, it's uh, fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. But no, it's 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 as you said, it's just a matter of making things pencil, I think, with uh, construction costs being uh, but, what they are. But I will add, I think the opportunity and what I'm working on is that I just did a preferred equity um, investment for $17 million and in, in an existing, an apartment complex that is almost completely constructed. Uh-huh. It'll get its last CEO here in two weeks. Cool. Um, fan, fantastic location. Um, best location in the marketplace, not a lot of competition. It's leasing up ahead of schedule. And the challenge was, is that the, um, the developers had two other projects coming out of the ground. And those projects had already started. The banks had promised one number, the market changed. So they were short capital. And what they were looking at is one of my competitors on Wall Street to recapitalize this project that they had. I stepped in and said, instead of doing $52 million, why don't you look at doing 17? Or I'll do preferred equity. I'll be on top of the senior loan. My cost at the end of the day is going to be um, on par with what with what Wall Street's offering, right. but where I'll have an advantage is that I'm going to go see the property every week. So I don't right. need you to do certain things that they're going to need you to do because they're sitting in New York. And so those are the opportunities. I think I think in this marketplace, it's incredible the opportunities that we have in front of us. And then well, and then again, depending on where it goes, it it could be a repeat of what we we dealt with back in 2012, 2011. Yeah, you know, it's it's it, it keeps repeating itself. It keeps repeating itself. So so plans for the next year or two, just as we think about where where you're going. I mean, we talked about sort of as things are evolving. You know, your your comments about where we are as state of the market, I think, is well put. Um, I imagine you're raising more capital. Like, what's what's going on on that front? Like, sort of oh, strategy it's, you know, stage. Sometimes in life, you don't get a second chance. And back in the you know the 2009, I set up the I set up the structure, I established Southmark. We had capital. Um, we also had great relationships, mm-hmm. and we were approved with the FDIC for the PIPP plan. Yep. And an opportunity came up on a 50 million dollar. Um, it was a portfolio that was 200. No, it was, it was a portfolio about 150, and it ended up trading for about 50, and. And I, and what I realized at that moment that I didn't have the right capital structure because what I had always done is I had just relied on deal by deal. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, 
I had the relationships, I had the insight, I had the expertise, but I did not have the structure and the structure needed to close that deal was to have the money at the table at the time. And unfortunately, I lost that one to Blackstone. And and, and I and I tracked that one afterwards. That was an incredible that was an incredible opportunity. So what what we're doing this time is we're in the process of raising 150 million dollars. We're about a third third of the way there on the fund and it's right. just being positioned to take advantage of of right now the opportunities that exist in the marketplace do do 10 more of the preferred equity investments we just did but also to be in a position that if something happens because of the the tightened bank lending environment that we're in if something breaks you know you know back back in the great financial crisis we dropped interest rates to zero and people could make their payments and it was the old pretend and extend and things floated along yep Today, the model of pretend and extend when interest rates are where they're at is going to be a little bit different than it was back then. And so it may force some transactions to happen. So we're we're trying to we're trying to see if we can't get in a position to take advantage. Yeah. And, and, you know, and your point about lenders is, you know, it's not just what the rates are. It's whether or not lenders are lending. And a lot of banks right now, because of their own internal capital issues, they're just not liquid. They just can't put out right. the money that they want to. So even if a loan comes due and you say final pay you, you know, seven instead of five, they still just may not be able to lend the money because they're internal capital issues. Uh, and I think that's what people sometimes don't understand. It's not just about rates. And your point about how the private lending market has grown, that that's why. I mean, because if a bank won't lend me money, well, I need to get it from someone. So now what do I do? Uh, it's uh, it's interesting. It's definitely interesting. No, I... I yeah. I've been asking people this question because I, I think the uh, the next 12 to 24 months, we're all trying to figure out wh where are we going and what will it look like? It, it, there seems to be a real lack of clarity. So, right. Right. cool. Well, look, this has been great. It's fun to talk about the non-traditional lending market, though. It's funny when you talk about, you know, your comments about how it's a $200 billion, uh, you know, $200 billion lending market. Uh, it feels weird calling it alternative because it's sort of like, well, is it really alternative if it's $200 billion? Like that's not a, uh, you know, right. maybe, maybe I'm showing my age, but I remember when Nirvana was the biggest selling band in America and technically uh -huh. they were alternative. I'm like, well, if you're the biggest selling band in America, by definition, you're not alternative, you're mainstream. That's right. So that's, right. that's kind of where you guys are. And if I could leave you with anything, maybe you guys can be the Nirvana of lending. They're worse people to imitate you know, uh, just from my own musical tastes um nonetheless uh thanks again for joining uh, me kevin this is very constructive and uh again that's southmarkcapital.com kevin mccarthy great thanks again thanks josh